District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. Welcome to episode 163 of District of Conservation. Keeping in line with our Keepers of the Everglades series, I present you all with part two. I'm going to highlight the contributions and musings of two standout women from very different backgrounds who are greatly involved in the cause of the greater Everglades ecosystem. The first one is Betty Osceola, who I recorded talking very eloquently about her take on Everglades restoration. She is a Native American Everglades educator, conservationist, and clean water advocate, and she is the member of the Miccosukee tribe of Indians of Florida Panther clan. And I also talk with Nyla Pipes of One Florida Foundation. And Nyla is a stalwart advocate on this issue. She knows her stuff. And we had her talk about her advocacy and working with all the different stakeholders. So here are some women who are keepers of the Everglades. Check it out. As water comes into the system, especially when it, like I'm gonna use my tribe's reservation lands for the entry point and water conservation area 3A where you have the L28 canal and the L20 interceptor joint. Mm -hmm. When you have runoff, not just agriculture, everybody wants to look at agriculture. Yep. This uh, flooding we had was actually West Palm Beach and Broward's water. Golf right. that, was in, that was intentionally pumped yep. into these areas. But when those canals are used to bring that water in from all those different sources, not just agriculture, but urban areas as well, when it comes into that entry point, you'll see the major impact right away of what's happening. But as it starts flowing south, then because it's going over a large area, these plants are removing that nutrients from the water, but it's in the plants. Yeah, it's still here. It's still here, but it's, you know, the, the plants uptake, they yep. consume mm -hmm. that nutrient. And then as uh, what we also notice, as it starts flowing south, when you get to a canal and there's a ridge, because when they they built that canal, they had the dredge, right? And that fill remained, creating kind of like a levee, a dam. So after time, all that water, especially where uh, I run my airboats in 3A, the muck there is deeper because it's hit that ridge of rock. It can't go further, so it starts getting deeper. and, and that area is really, really dense with cattails because it's very rich in those nutrients that have stopped right there. And that's like, you know, cattails on steroids in that area. So it's gonna impound in, in there wherever you have these canals and channels where they've left that rock. Got it. You can't go. And that's, also too, I guess that's what I was trying to make sure I was yeah. understanding. Yeah, Thank that's you. because in the interior, it gets cleaner as the water starts flowing south because it, as it goes, the, the nutrients are being scrubbed out of the water, taken out of the water. That's it most for the most part the phosphorus is the nitrogen that flows on down and it can reach Florida Bay. The more water you send down to Florida Bay, if you're not looking at the nitrogen in there, the more you're going to hurt Florida Bay. The, the the grasses and the corals down there. That's what needs to be understood. Also, when you're bringing all that water in, you have to understand too what is it you're impacting as well, and also water's movement. Because historically, just like those fingers, you have water going to the east, to the southeast, to the west, to the south, to the southwest, and to the west. So now, because I live in between Miami and Naples, and I travel towards the west coast, even in my lifetime, 
I'm seeing because of the lack of fresh water going to the southwest coast towards Everglades City and Chakaluski, where water historically went in that portion of the greater Everglades. There, you're seeing more saltwater intrusion and also more saltwater plant life that was never there come inland. All those mangroves and stuff, not in my lifetime, but I know in my late mother and my late uncle's lifetime, that's like 90 years ago, they, they talked about how the mangroves were at the coast, not up along Highway 41 like you see now, that's especially when you get now. into Ochapi. Yeah. The mangroves didn't come that far inland. And that's because you have lack of fresh water going there so it's being replaced with the saltwater plant life because saltwater is coming further inland and some of the indian camps that are towards the ochapi area close to everglades city their freshwater wells are now being contaminated with salt water mm. and even to um as uh where uh, turner river road is there's an indian camp there they had to switch out their well system because they got saltwater intrusion and that's the big uh, push in Everglades restoration to that they don't understand the natural his, historic way water wanted to flow. They're only focused on getting water through one particular slough into Everglades National Park and force it there unnaturally and getting it onto Florida Bay. But by doing that, they're consigning the death of the western, southwestern portion of the Everglades that also needed to have fresh water and that's really the the point that people need to understand if you want to heal the Everglades I don't agree with Everglades restoration because that's a plan to kill the Everglades and I said it yeah I'll throw it out there I'll say it again I'll keep saying it because I'm about healing the Everglades and if you want to heal the Everglades then you have to let nature have that opportunity to recover and you need to allow to if you wanted to you're never going to get the historic Everglades again, but you can start helping what you have now and prevent further loss of what you have now. And that's by letting the water go where it wants to go. Quit trying to, man and the powers that be, mankind, wants to control where they want, that what water they want to go. It's all about urban, the, the Everglades restoration that they're really pushing is about urban water source. Supply water supply for the mm -hmm. urban areas. That's what this current design of Everglades restoration is. It's not about helping the actual Everglades, it's securing their water supply for the urban areas. And they'll try to tell you different, but when you see everything they do, it's not about helping the Everglades. Because you have urban areas dictating they don't want that water, they want it to sit here. Satellite imagery now because they're draw with their their water draw for their community for their county because they're drawing so much water is actually starting to shape the islands towards the east when historically they they hooked and went towards the west because of all that water that they're pulling from that demand for their communities so this intent to send water that way yes everybody wants to say they wanted to get it to Florida Bay. Water got to Florida Bay also through the western side. But it's about making sure that urban area and whoever has a vested interest in that area wants water to go that way. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great explanation. Thank you, Betty. Oh, yeah. Nyla, introduce yourself. Nyla Pipes, Executive Director of One Florida Foundation. Talk about how you got involved in water quality issues. 
So I have been in the state of Florida for 10 years, and in 2013, when the blue-green algae occurred in the uh, St. Lucie River and the Indian River Lagoon, I immediately started going to the South Florida Water Management District Governing Board meetings and talking to them about things like our heavy reliance on septic tanks and the fact that we had sewage spills on a regular basis, honestly, all over the state. And I, I was born and raised on a water body um, north of Spokane, Washington, uh, the upper Columbia River, actually. And I came to this conversation with about a, a lot of understanding about sewage and how sewage feeds these algal blooms as a result of that. So for me, it just was a natural space to be because I had moved here, there were all these problems, we really need to work on it. And the more I started speaking up, the more I learned and the more I learned about flood control and the Everglades and Everglades restoration, the more I realized Native Floridians were really underrepresented, I guess, in, in the whole thing. So many people move to Florida from a urban environment and they don't understand what cattle ranches do or what farmers do. And they haven't got a connection to the land in the same way. So that's why I stuck with it because I felt there was a need for sort of a, an outsider's perspective in some of this in order to protect what native Floridians, you know, people who are born and raised generationally here do. And, and there's a lot that they provide, right? Um, environmentally, it's, it's amazing because I always tell people the last crop is always houses. And if we don't protect our ranch lands and we don't protect our farmlands, then we've got a whole lot more sewage, a whole lot more stormwater runoff, just a whole lot more nutrients into Lake Okeechobee, into the, into the Everglades, and as that all culminates, it creates such a problem, right? So I just kept speaking up and eventually had a nonprofit. And, you know, I show up every day and speak up on these issues. You do. Before we connected in person, you would tell me a little bit about stuff. And you, you told me that there's not a lot of nuance in the issue. You're either kind of painted in the camp of you're for Everglades restoration or you're in the pocket of big sugar and you kind of fall in the middle. Like you're not really owned by any interest. You're yourself, you're a one woman kind of operation. So explain that and so, briefly without obviously exploring all that because there are different caveats to this. But, sure. but, but explaining the, the basics of the issue, why is it so important that nuance be understood and that people can just individually understand? So there's a- Hold on one second. There's a lot there in that conversation. I do have a small board. I have a, a small organization. We purposely keep it small. We're 100% volunteer. That's really important to me because I know that the people I work with, we all show up every day because we care. And that's what I think has been missing in a lot of this. You know, there, there are a lot of groups that it's about the fundraising and it's about the fancy ad campaigns and it's about, you know, these, these fancy ad campaigns and moving forward to further their organizations. Mm -hmm. And what One Florida does is we're very solutions oriented. We're very, um, it, it's very important to us that we have science-based policy happening. And so we actively seek out people who are working in that realm and, and we stick to the facts, even when the facts are hard. 
you know, it's difficult for people to accept that the people south of the lake in the Everglades agricultural area where the sugar crops and many, many other crops, by the way, are grown, it's difficult for people to accept that they have made huge progress in working on nutrient control and working with the Everglades as opposed to against it. You know, the fight's no longer there. The Everglades Forever Act in uh, 94 made it so that they had to do better, and they have. Where we really need to focus is north of the lake. You know, we've got a nearly 5,000 square mile drainage basin draining into Lake Okeechobee. Most of that is not captured. You know, it's difficult because um, people want to blame the ranchers north of the lake. The problem I see is at the very headwaters of the entire Everglades, which are near Orlando, we have nothing but ongoing marching development. You know, every time you drive north along the Kissimmee, every time you go to Orlando, you see more and more of the headwaters region being eaten up by the development. And so is is the uh, nutrient loading into Lake Okeechobee primarily from agriculture? There's a lot of legacy nutrient loading there. But the newer nutrients, the stuff that's happening now, you know, honestly, a lot of it has to do with the fact that ag lands are now being taken out of production and put into an urban, you know, land use. Yeah, and um, when you talk about that, obviously, um, a lot of people say, like I had mentioned earlier, it's like a black and white issue. And you were talking actually how there's sewage problems that yes. are not being addressed. Like you have people talking about sending water south and you said there's kind of a debate over that notion. Um, and, but you say there's a sewage problem being ignored. Talk about that caveat as well. Sewage, I would say, is one of the largest problems we have as far as our water goes in the state of Florida. And the reason that that runs into the Everglades restoration conversation is because of our flood control system, right? So every time it rains, we've got septic tanks on every water body. Um, you've got high groundwater. You've got tidal, you know, zones where these septic systems are no longer functioning the way they're supposed to because they're sitting in the water. That's immediate nutrients going right to the waterways. On top of it, in a lot of the areas that do have a more modern sanitary sewer system, you know, some of these were put in in the 50s, and they've got things like Orangeburg pipes or clay mm -hmm. pipes or even wooden pipes. Mm -hmm. City of Fort Lauderdale is a perfect example of that. You know, their sewer system is over 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And what happens, again, every time it rains, the groundwater is high, the surface water is gushing with all that flooding that happens, mm -hmm. and it's impossible to sort out mm -hmm. what's sewage in those pipes that are very mm -hmm. leaky and what is just coming off the land. And so sewage nutrients, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus, um, particularly the, the nitrogen, a lot of people don't realize that, a lot of people don't realize that um, in sewage, it's not as much the more solid, mm -hmm. but it's your urea. Your urea is very, very high in nitrogen. And so we're beginning to really understand that with these algal blooms, whether it be cyanobacteria, the blooming algae, or red tide, or even some of the, the larger, you know, seaweeds and algaes that we have, um, even the water hyacinths, right? All of these things, the blooms happen when the balance between your nitrogen and your phosphorus gets off. It's like a, a large fish tank, right? If one, if one nutrient is out of balance with the other, then you end up with a bloom. And honestly, that's what's happening throughout the state of Florida right now. So how can people get involved in 
Hold on one second. How can people get involved in your efforts with Everglades Restoration? Obviously, you guys have kind of set up a very vast network of ranchers, conservationists, sportsmen, women. Uh, what would you say kind of in an elevator pitch would be the best way to get involved and learn more about the issue? You know, there's a number of, of places you can go. Um, I'll just start by mentioning that OneFloridaFoundation.org is my organization. We do a lot of our work also on our Facebook page. Um, but there are other really great opportunities to be involved. Um, mm -hmm. My friend Brad Ferris, he's got a ranch. He also has a podcast. It's called Between the Beaches. If you want to learn more about, you know, some of the things that are going on in Florida and, and how Florida ranchers actually care about the environment, between the Beaches is a great podcast to follow. Um, obviously, we're thankful for the work you're doing. <laughs> um, Cast and Blast Florida, Travis Thompson, he looks at these water issues from a uh, sportsman perspective, and he's mm -hmm. got a great network. So there, there are a number of places you can go for great information. Awesome. Thanks so much for chatting, Nyla. Thank you. Thanks for listening to part two of our Keepers of the Everglades series here on the podcast. If you enjoyed what both Betty and Nyla had to say, make sure you connect with them and learn more about their efforts. I will tease a little bit of my extended conversation with some others on their involvement with this really cool project called Aquaculture. And since I haven't released the CFACT video yet, I'm not going to reveal every single thing about it. I want to give a teaser. So when we do put out the video, I can put out the full extent of our conversation, but I'm going to put big chunks of the conversations we had that we plan to include in the video for you all tomorrow. So stay tuned for part three, which is a teaser of our aquaculture segment then. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. Make sure you also follow us on your preferred platforms. And if you have Apple, go leave us some five-star reviews. And if you feel inclined, make sure you connect with us on social media, send your feedback, and let us know how you feel about this series and what else you'd like to see here on the podcast. <laughs>